Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for joining us again for an amazing Wednesday session. Um, I wanted to start by um, highlighting again um, the really bold and breakthrough khutbah from this past Friday about um, sexual abuse. And, you know, this is again one of these topics that no one else is willing to touch in any other Islamic space. And I wanted to raise it because very beautifully, we've actually received um, a lot of communication from women who have been in the situation where they've been abused in Islamic spaces. Um, and it, you know, uh, um, people who reached out wrote heartbreaking messages, but messages that were so grateful and thankful that the Sheikh talked about this issue. Um, and I know we've been trying to share it, and it's interesting because I was expecting that it would you know, receive a lot more, I guess, attention than it has. And I realized that, you know, this is such a painful topic that there are a lot of people who experience this issue and just don't want to go back and relive it. They don't want to deal with, um, you know, the trauma and, and the aftermath and all of that. But um, for the few people that reached out, they really felt grateful for hearing the voice of truth. And I think, um, and, and also expressed that they felt this was the first step towards healing. And I, um, you know, th this is something that obviously um, needs to be said and is pervasive, and not in just in our religious community, but obviously in you know other religious communities. And it's just one of these things that just has to come out. There, there have to be ways for victims to not be completely dismissed and dehumanized, and you know, feel like they've been left behind, especially as their abusers are honored in spaces. You know, whether they've passed away and they've been honored um, as you know, post, uh, whatever the word is, postmortem. Uh, no, I don't know if that's right. Post. What's the word? Posthumous. Posthumously. Thank you. <laughs> postmortem <laughs> is like when you're you're like uh, a medical expert, sorry about that, um, not to be gross, um, but, you know, posthumously, um, or that they, or, or that abusers continue to um, be in spaces where they are speaking um, and even taking positions of, you know, of leadership in, in Muslim spaces, um, and people are, are too traumatized um, to speak out because they also know that, that they um, will not necessarily have community support. Um, you know, this is one of these really important issues of permission, and it reminds me, um, you know, when, when I met Sheikh so many years ago, and I was, you know, a convert and new to just the whole Muslim community space, um, I, I was surprised by the reaction when I tried to raise, to me, very straightforward issues, just asking questions and things like that. And what was really powerful to me about Sheikh's approach and his, his um, you know, entire ethic is just giving you permission to use your brain, giving you permission to question. And, you know, that is so, um, you know, empowering to feel like you are seen, that your questions matter, that you're, you know, because a lot of times I felt like I was being, you know, gaslit, right? You ask a question that feels obvious, but people react to you with religious garb as if what you're saying makes no sense. Well, this is one of those situations, again, you know, you you know, elevating from having the permission to ask a question 
to actually having permission to stand up for your rights and to say, hey, I was a victim, hey, this is wrong, this is not something that our religious tradition, you know, defends. There, this hypocrisy, it just, it stinks to the high heaven, people recognize it, and when, when the victims see it, but they don't see the rest of the community acknowledge it, that is just, it's soul crushing, and it's absolutely wrong. So um, I'm always proud, again, that you know we speak about topics here in this space that um, other spaces are not willing to touch. And I hope that people will share this um, widely because um, from the experience that we've had, it's been extremely healing. Some people have been dealing with this issue for 10 years, and this was the first time that they felt that they could actually start the process of healing and not be completely guilted and shamed um, into oblivion. So. Um, Again, this was last Friday's um, chutbah, and I also wanted to share um, some resources. So, you know, the other thing that is, has been very interesting is while people have come forward um, to thank the sheikh, there, that doesn't necessarily mean that they feel comfortable in taking any steps beyond that. And oftentimes people in communities who want to support victims often cannot really do anything without the victim's consent. And so then what, what that means is that abusers can continue to, to move freely um, without any consequence. And so there have been at least some websites that have been started that um, identify who some of these people are. So at a minimum, you know, if, if someone has had an experience and wants to report them, it's, you know, it's like a, um, a sex abuser's, um, you know, record. You, you can log them in to some of these spaces. Um, and then we should really um, impress upon, you know, organizations, mosques, and, you know, people who invite speakers to vet these, their invitations, like go to these websites and make sure that none of the people that you're inviting to speak are actually sex offenders. So um, let me just give you a few names um, and resources and we can probably go ahead and share these on social media. Um, I know there's one called In Sheikh's Clothing, which um, you know, we, we've um, interacted with the person who started that website. There's one called facetogether.org. Um, there's rain, R-A-I-N-N.org. There's the Khalil Center, K-H-A-L-I-L -L Center in Los Angeles, and that, their website is khalilcenter.com. Um, there is Access California Services for Counseling and Support, and Waymakers. Um, it's Waymaker, W-A-Y-M-A-K-E-R-S-O-C.org. And I'm sure that there are more, but at least that's just a starting point. Um, and I know that when we took a look through some of these websites, we, we were shocked that there, there are people there, there's the evidence there, there are legal documents that show that some of these people have been you know, brought to justice. Um, and I think a lot of people maybe just don't know that these resources are there, but um, it's important that we as a community you know, do more to help victims. Um, and e even you know, ones who are so traumatized they can't do anything for themselves, we should at least allow people to know where to go where they can anonymously um, submit information that then can be investigated so others will not be hurt. So um, anyway, just uh, wanted to leave that with, with you. And then um, lastly, I'm, I'm so excited. Last week, before last Halakha, I mistakenly said, welcome to Medina, because I thought that that was our first Medina surah. And then I learned, no, I actually know we're still in Mecca. <laughs> so um, today we actually, you know, from prayer, we, we um, are covering um, the last Meccan surah that we're aware of, which is very interesting too, because um, in, in my non-scholarly brain, it seems to me that, um, you know, we've all been expecting Matafafin as sort of the last Meccan surah. 
it actually then lends credence to what the chef was saying about all the other previous surahs that, you know, where there was discussion about it, what is it, Medinan is a Meccan. You know, from our path and our journey, it seems then that we've actually covered all the Meccan surahs and we're completing it today before we go to Medina, before we head off on our hijra. So anyway, um, I just thought I would make that note, but um, alhamdulillah, I'm so excited. It's incredible because now I think this is what, the 66th or 67th surah that we've covered? Which one? 65. Is this the 65th? Okay. Um, and I think um, we, we were also counting that between um, all of the surahs that the professor has covered in halakas, whether they were line by line, traditional method, or project lumen method, or even way before surah started, I think he's covered, what, 91 chapters of the Quran in total. So out of 114, which is absolutely stunning. Um, I don't know that anyone else has done that to this degree, but um, just wanted to call that out because, you know, that's amazing. So anyway, thank you so much for joining us. I'm looking forward to another wonderful session, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Aliyah al-Azim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa tabab ihsanin ila yawm al-Din. اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين. ان شاء الله today we be covering سورة المطففين. المطففين is reported to be the last surah revealed in Mecca. Uh, although there is some debate as to whether المطففين was revealed uh, as the last surah in Mecca or perhaps the first surah in Medina and some reports even say that half of al-mutaffifin was revealed in Mecca and then the surah was completed in Medina so that it was right at the cusp of the hijrah um, and um, as we will see, I mean, it, it's, there is, there is a reason why people say that, or some claim that it was revealed in, um, in Medina because of some of the reports as to the, uh, the circumstances of Surat al-Mutafifin. Um, but again, as we inshallah will discuss, I don't think that the, that Surat al-Mutafifin was revealed in Medina. I think, although, I mean, it's a minority view, but it exists. And the evidence for it being in Medina, a, a surah that was, among the early revelations of Medina, or the earliest revelation of Medina, I think is not very strong. I think it is 
very likely the last surah to be revealed in Mecca. Um, maybe, Allahu Alam, uh, the reports that say half was revealed in, in Mecca and then, but for various technical reasons, I have my doubts about that as well. Uh, but rather, I do think that Surah Al-Mutafifin was the last revelation in in Mecca. And of course, that uh, makes Surah Al-Mutafifin um, interesting in uh, uh, contextually. Uh, if we all know by now that the the Hizra particularly the, from Mecca to Medina had already involved a considerable amount of sacrifices by Muslims and now a, a new chapter is going to be opened up in Medina and this is a point where the interventions of the Quran are critical uh, because it orients the entire normative thrust of uh, the early Muslim community as it's sort of building its identity and its um, what it stands for what it stands for within the nascent uh, uh, young community in Medina, but also what it stands for reputationally uh, in the entire region. And so what the Quran says at this point is very important. And it will get a lot of attention and of course among the recipients who are listening very carefully to what the Quran is going to be saying are the Meccans, the persecutors who have now are watching Muslims ejected from their homeland um, and as far as they're concerned, they they uh, they have now become effectively displaced people, refugees, and with an enormous amount of skepticism as to whether they will be able to put their their act together uh, elsewhere, outside of Mecca, but also the other side of the recipients of the Quranic message are the folks in Medina who as uh, you might already know Medina is has a certain ties to Mecca through lineage uh, there is shared marriages and shared ancestry between Medina and Mecca but the prevailing reality of Medina is that 
there is an, a civil war between the Aus and the Khazraj, the two main tribes in Medina. And the civil war has been ongoing for a very long time. And the casualties from the civil war has, uh, and, and the, the trauma from that civil war has effectively made uh, Medina um, politically insignificant on the, the map of Arabia. Um, the Aus and the Khazraj are no longer, by the time the Prophet immigrates and, uh, and his followers immigrate to, the, to Medina, the Aus and the Khazraj are no longer the important tribes that they used to be a hundred years ago. The civil war has depleted them. And Medina has a, a number of settlements by Jewish tribes uh, who, because they have sat on the side uh, in, in the civil war between the Aus and the Khazraj, are in a good financial position. And they are able through this financial position and through basically what seems to be selling arms to both sides of the conflict um, have profited from the blood feud that has been going on for Medina for a long time. So understanding the Quran situation, I think is very important because it, it, it helps us understand what the moral messaging of the Qur'an and what, the, what, the, um, sig what signals the Qur'an was giving out to um, its followers within context. Okay. So, This is where it becomes particularly important to understand when the Quran comes in and says, "Wailun al-mutaffifin, al-ladina idha ktanu ala nas yastafun wa idha kaluhum awazanuhum khusurun." So this. The theme and the language, as we will see, is very important. The study Quran translates it as, Woe unto the defrauders who, when they take measure from people, demand it in full. And when they measure for them or weigh for them, they stint. Do they not think that they will be resurrected? Muhammad Asad, I think, is close to the same translation. Woe unto those who give short measure. Those who, when they are to receive their due from other people, demand that it be given in full, but when they have to measure or weigh whatever they owe to others, give less than what is due. Probably Muhammad Asad is closer 
to the to is more accurate to uh, the original than the study Quran's choice of words. Okay, so it seems fairly straightforward, right? That it speaks about fraudulent business transactions and um, being unfair in the way that you measure your produce. And in the tradition, we have a report that sort of uh, uh, thematically gives this apparent meaning uh, a, a nice and neat context. And the report says that when the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina, the traders, the merchants of Medina were all very dishonest and that uh, they were not fair in measures. And that uh, after Surah Al-Mutaffifin, they were transformed into honest merchants and remained so uh, for centuries. The report usually says, and remain so till our very day, or something like that. Um, now, of course, the these reports, you you get a sense that they're that they're staged reports, uh, not just because they say that the merchants were dishonest and then one surah transformed the merchants miraculously into honest merchants. But when you get a report that says, and they remain so to our day, well, if the report goes back to the Prophet ﷺ, what does that reference to our day means? It, 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 that is a sure indicator of a tension where the, the people who narrated the report had in mind their day, which was centuries after the Prophet died. But the choice of words, they, 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 they didn't tighten the, the, the um, mechanics of the report sufficiently because it wouldn't make sense for the prophet to say and they remain so to our day this doesn't necessarily mean that it was an, it, it, a lot of time these types of corruptions um, enter just in the way that reports are copied and transmitted but there is also a very similar report that says the same thing but about the people of Mecca and it's the report says that it was the people of Mecca who were dishonest merchants and that after Surah Al-Mutafifin uh, they became honest merchants which makes even less sense because the people of Mecca were, were not Muslim and 
it doesn't say, well, you know, after they converted to Islam, they became honest merchants. It just says after the Mutafifin. Both versions, uh, whether it's about the merchants of Medina or the merchants of Mecca, um, have the classic uh, insignia of medieval drama. The, in, in the medieval mind, often the, the, the word transforms, and the narrative is often staged in the in a fashion where there it's bad, and then there is an intervention by the word, and then things become good, and that sometimes that type of um, uh, mechanical structure and narrative. Um, is again a sure indicator that and especially when the chain of transmission is is you know doesn't give you an absolute level of confidence um then it it allows you to understand now okay but what is interesting here are not the narratives about the occasion for revelation, but the language of Surah Al-Mutaffifin and the normative impact of Surah Al-Mutaffifin. So, Let's take a step back and pay attention to that word, the, the word Tafafa or Tatfif, which Al-Mutafafin comes from. And it is, if, if you know Arabic, that's the same word that Tafa, Tafa to float, comes from. Or um, um, totfif, where and literally it means increasing to the point where to the point near overflow, but not to, to that to that point of demarcation where you you reach near overflow but not overflow. So a totfif is an incremental layering of thing in measures and Muslim scholars paused at that expression because it was not common to refer to dishonest merchants as mutafifin it was an unusual linguistic expression. 
And the phrasing of Surat al-Mutaffifin comes in first by condemning a type, Waylon al-Mutaffifin, and then it identifies this type or it further elaborates upon what this type does, what this type of people do. Uh, in that they are unfair with measures and that they make sure that when they use measures that they manipulate measures or that they use measures in order the Quran doesn't say commit acts of legal fraud, but commit tatfif. Tatfif, where literally, if you want it in literal translation, it's like skimming off the top. Like just getting incremental advantages for themselves and incremental disadvantages to the other. And of course, it made perfect sense to ask, well, why would the Quran, why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala use the word tatfif? He could have called these merchants cheaters. He could have called them defrauders. He could have called them dishonest. He could have said thieves. But it used that expression, al-mutaffifin. And this sparked a considerable exploration that mirrored the way that the companions interacted with Surat al-Mutaffifin. I'll give you a sense. Okay. So, Okay. So I'm gonna just first uh, read it quickly in Arabic and then paraphrase. This is from Tafsir al-Razi. So Razi says, "وَعَلَمْ أَنَّ أَمْرَ الْمَكِيَانِ وَالْمِيزَانِ عَظِيمٌ وَذَلِكَ لِأَنَّ عَمَّةَ الْخَلْقِ يَحْتَاجُونَ إلَى الْمُعَامَلَاتِ وَهِيَ مَبْنِيَةٌ عَلَى أَمْرِ الْمَكِيَانِ وَالْمِيزَانِ فَلِهَذَا السَّبَبَ عَظَمَ اللَّهُ أَمْرُهُ فقال والسماء رفعها وضع الميزان ألا تضغوا في الميزان وأقيموا الوزن بالقسط ولا تخسروا الميزان 
وقال وقال ولقد ارسلنا رسلنا بالبينات وانزلنا معهم الكتاب والميزان ليقوم الناس بالقسط وعن قتاده اوفوا يا ابن ادم الكيل كما تحب ان يوفى لك واعدل كما تحب ان يعدل لك وعن فضيل بخس الميزان سواد الوجه يوم القيامه وقال اعرابي لعبد الملك بن مروان قد سمعت ما قال الله تعالى في المطففين اراد بذلك ان المطفف قد توجه عليه الوعيد العظيم في اخذ القليل فما ظنك بنفسك وانت تاخذ الكثير وتاخذ اموال المسلمين بلا كيل ولا وزن قوله تعالى الا يظن الا يظن اولئك انهم مبعوثون اليوم العظيم عن ان تعالى هؤلاء المطففين فقال الا يظن انهم مبعوثون يوم هذا التقدير وحاسبت المطفف لأجل ذلك القدر الطفيف وقال الأستاذ أبو قاسم القشيري لفظ المطفف يتناول التطفيف في الوزن والكيل وفي إظهار العيب وإخفائه وفي طلب الإنصاف والانتصاف ويقال من لم يرضى لأخيه المسلم ما يرضاه لنفسه فليس بمنصف والمعاشرة والصحبة من هذه الجملة والذي يرى عيب الناس ولا يرى عيب نفسه من هذه الجملة ومن طلع حق, حق نفسه من الناس ولا, ولا يعطيهم حقوقهم كما يطلبه لنفسه فهو من هذه الجملة رازي سمز اب ذا تراديشن ذا discourses that you find around Al-Mutaffafin rather nicely. Because as he says, Al-Mutaffaf is, as we said, that who seeks even a small advantage. Al-Mutaffaf is um, As you say, Qadr al-Tafif, that someone who takes something for themselves, even if very small. But obviously, he's not, the Quran is not talking about taking something for yourself that is very small, justly. So what is it talking about? It's talking about taking something for yourself, even if very small, unjustly. Okay, so at the same time, as Al-Razi says, Allah underscored the concept of Al-Mizan, the concept of the scale and the balance as the heart and core for our understanding of justice. So, Allah had already, by the time Surah Al-Mutafifin is revealed, has emphasized for Muslims that justice, conceptually, is a matter of scale. Well, if you understand justice as a matter of scale, and Allah comes in the Surah and says, that those who attain even a slight disadvantage unjustly. So you put together the two and what do you come out with? 
you come out with conceptions of justice. What are the conceptions of justice that you come out with so I don't forget anything? Well, at the very basic level is that at the very basic level is that you treat or you give as you would like to take. So at the very heart or the, the very foundation of justice is as the Prophet ﷺ said, Human beings, Ibn Adam is sons of sons and daughters of Adam. Deal justly. So treat others when it comes to justice, treat others as you would like to be treated. That justice is a matter of the treatment that you would like to have as you would like to be treated, you treat others. And if you don't, that will darken your heart. Okay, and a narrative that is very widely reported, whether it's historical or not, probably it has some basis in history, that a poor Bedouin went to the caliph, Al-Malik ibn Marwan, and Al-Malik ibn Marwan was known for his power and influence and so on, and he tells him, Allah talks about the mutaffifin, those who attain a small advantage to themselves unfairly. And how about you when you not just attain a small advantage yourself, you treat Muslims unjustly and oppress them by taking their money and their property, not even bothering using a scale or any meaning, any pretense of justice. When the, the expression that you don't even bother using a scale, meaning you don't even bother with the pretense of justice. And But beyond that, that a mutaffif is not just someone who cheats in business, but a mutaffif is a personality type. A personality type, someone who accepts for human beings what he would not accept for himself. A personality type that 
sees the faults of others, but doesn't see his own fault. And a personality type who will notice when his rights are not given in full, but will not notice when the rights of other people are denied. Now, although Arazi But there is more than what Irazi says. So, others said that al-mutaffifin, what is intended by Waylon al-mutaffifin is not merchants cheating in business deals uh, exclusively or even mainly. But what is intended by Mutafifin are those who feel that it is no big deal to ignore the rights due to other human beings or to take the rights of human beings because the privilege that they allow themselves in their mind is not a big deal. So they say, المطفف هو المقلل حق صاحبه المقلل لحق صاحبه that المطفف is if I look at you and I am not keen about fulfilling your rights or if I disregard your rights or if I take your rights for granted I am a المطفف So, even they included usury under Hukm al-Tatfif. So, if I deal in usury, that's a mutafif. Now, but we pause at something that Razi said, and I, I emphasize because of how Surah al-Mutafifin was understood contrasted to how we teach it to our children. That if you accept for yourself, if you accept for other people rather, what you would not accept for yourself, you are a mutafif. Or if you focus on the faults of other people rather than your own faults, you are a mutafif. Then what we are dealing with is a whole conception of justice summed up in a few ayahs. وَيْلٌ لِلْمُطَفِّفِينَ الَّذِينَ إِذَا كَتَالُوا عَلَى النَّاسِ يَسْتَغْفُونَ وَإِذَا كَالُوهُمْ أَوْ وَزَنُوهُمْ يُخْسِرُونَ So it, it's a, an entire 
philosophy of justice that if I watch people massacred, as happens in our modern age, and I don't, you know, I make excuses for the fact that they've been slaughtered, or if I watch people imprisoned and denied their rights, and I'll, and I'll tell you even something more astounding in a bit about Al-Amr Maruf and Neha Munkar as we go on. Um, people jailed or imprisoned or denied their rights, if I lack empathy so that in my view, as long as I am doing well, I don't care what happens to other people. All of this would come under al-mutaffifin. And some of the most interesting discussions about this is that al-tatfif is a moral ailment. And when Allah comes and says, وَيْلٌ لِلْمُطَفِّفِينَ is that Allah is warning that a people who have that moral ailment, that moral ailment where they are sensitized to what they are due, but desensitized to what they owe others, the moral ailment where they can, where they think egocentrically about what their rights are, but they make excuses when it comes to the rights of others. Exactly like the person who makes, you know, skims in in, in a in a business deal. Uh, you know, well, you know, I'm just saving. You know, I'm just taking a small amount that no one is going to miss, yet cumulatively by skimming off the top a a little bit (coughs) after a week, it will make a difference for me. But everyone that I sold to, they're not going to miss what I've taken. It's a small amount after all. So what is the problem? It's the moral attitude. And it's the moral attitude not about the business deal, but it's a moral attitude about justice and rights. And then, if you, when you realize that this is the way it was conceived of, then you would understand, well, why Surat al-Mutafifin would come at that critical juncture in the transition between Mecca and Medina. Because it's like saying you're going to build a society. Well, that society is not going to be built if your attitude is morally egocentric. If your attitude is one where as long as you have food, it doesn't matter who's going hungry, as long as you have shelter, it doesn't matter who 
doesn't have shelter, as long as you're taking care of, you make excuses as to why other people, their feelings and their interests are not on an equal footing, it's a no-go. This is underscored in a hadith that is widely reported Before, before I get to the hadith, uh, so one of the, um, something that you widely re, re, uh, read about Wairun al so uh, it says, Tark al-qiyam bil-qist wal-amal ala al-sawiyya wal-adl fi kulli akhz wa-ata' bal fi kulli qawl wa-amal wa-hal. So, what, who, what, what is it talking about when it says woe to the mutaffifin it's failing to act to be just and fair in everything you take and everything you do you give in fact in everything you say everything you do and every state of being. You can't get more comprehensive than that. So, now, the hadith, when the Prophet ﷺ is reported is reported to have a uh, been asked about Surah Al-Mutaffifin. And it, it, it's, it, there, there, it, there are many, it's reported in, in, in a number of permutations, but all of them go to the, to the same basic thing. Okay. So, most of the reports, the vast majority of the reports, say that the Prophet said, be warned of five things. And this is in the context of explaining Surah Al-Mutaffifin. If you fail to observe Once again. Okay. If you fail to observe your vows and your promises, if you fail to observe your covenants and your vows, Allah will give victory to your enemy over you meaning you will be defeated by your enemies. And if you fail to follow God's law, you will be stricken by poverty. And if al-fahisha or major sins 
like fornication and adultery spread in your society, you will find that with that, death normally is a fasha fihum al maut, meaning that they will be afflicted by diseases that cause death. And if you and if you fail to observe the command against التطفيف, meaning against this this phenomena, that moral ailment that we're talking about, that was described as a mutafifin. The punishment is that you will find that you are afflicted with um, failures in industry and agriculture and disease and plagues. And if you fail to give zakah, so the, the, then Allah denies that Allah holds back rain. Now, again, you have the, the, the typical medieval way of relating consequences that an immoral act leads to the, the typical medieval themes, right? Lack of rain, failure of crops, disease, and foreign invasions. These are the thematically the typical medieval things that are cited as a sign of Allah not blessing your society. Whether the Prophet articulated, articulated it that way or not is beside the point. The point, though, is the, what you extract from that is the moral lesson. The way we, we narrate things changes from one age to another. Vastly changes from one age to another. The way we construct our narratives. But the way the ideas communicated you'll find remarkable consistency in these ideas. And the idea being communicated here <clears throat> is that, and the importance is that this is all always narrated in the context of Surah Al-Mutafifin, is that when the Prophet reportedly is asked about what Surah Al-Mutafifin means, he relates a number of moral failures. And the moral failures is you ignore God's commands, you fail to observe your vows and covenants and promises, so your words are worthless, you are become promiscuous and heedless towards what the, the laws of morality and you no longer care about justice 
using here tafaful kail that they they uh, are no longer observant towards the measures of justice, and you no longer give to the poor, and these things invoke what invoke absolute catastrophe on society. So, take a step back. How did Surat al-Mutaffifin, how was Surat al-Mutaffifin, and especially we're just at the very first ayat of Surat al-Mutaffifin, impact Muslims? They didn't take it simply as someone, you know, skimming a little off the top and selling corn or selling grain. They understood it in a way that was far more comprehensive than the way that we teach it to our children. Because every time I've heard Surat al-Mutafifim taught in any place in the United States in the last 30 years, it was always, you know, it's about merchants cheating. Don't cheat when you sell, sell stuff. And so in the mind of a Muslim, it's also entirely irrelevant, as long as I'm not a merchant. And even, you know, not that, unfortunately, we've, but the gravity of Allah coming in and saying, it's like Allah saying, you, you, you want, you want, some advice as you're going about to, as you're escaping persecution and building a new society, well, the advice I have to tell you is, don't you dare forget justice. How more resolute can you be? And don't you dare even cheat when it comes to justice, or ignore the rights of others, even if the infractions you are committing are relatively small. And even if you justify to yourself in your mind, well, the impact is not big. I'm just cheating a little bit. I'm just gaining a little advantage. That's what tatfif is. It's like, just a little. You know, it's not a big deal, it's just a little. It doesn't hurt anyone, or it hurts people a little bit, but it means a lot to me. But that's precisely the moral attitude that the Quran is talking about. There are, there's more. Um, there's, a, you know, more that the, that there are reports about um, a man who, after uh, a, a man who uh, is dying in Medina, and on his deathbed he sees hell, and then he admits to one of the companions, one of the Sahaba, that uh, I, I realize where I'm going because I used to cheat just a little bit because my, my ch I told myself my children are needy and hungry, and so I would 
do a little bit. She, I would. She, I, there's another report about a man who had two skills: one for when he buys things, and another when he sells things. And how Allah cursed him to the depths of hell, depths of hell, for having two skills. There are reports about people being described as the cursed mutaffifin because they would eat and they would prepare food and eat and not worry about whether their neighbors had enough food or not. There are reports that where that the Surat al-Mutaffifin or that the, the um, uh, because of Surat al-Mutaffifin that the um, uh, displaced homeless uh, folks who lived in the Prophet's mosque والسلام, w- uh, never went to bed without food although the family of the Prophet it's, uh, themselves often went to bed without food. In other words, although the family of the Prophet will starve out of their fear of Surah Al-Mutaffifin, they would always make sure that the, that the, the destitute, um, impoverished class always had enough, even if they went hungry. There's a lot. I mean, I can sit here and, and go on for a long time about all the narratives that surround just that beginning opening by the Mutafifin. Let me see, sure if I, I don't forget anything that I regret later. Um, I already talked about the example of Surah uh, Mutafifin being used in the um, dialectics of anti oppression. So, like the story I read about Malik bin Marwan, that typically you have a brave soul that would go and confront an unjust ruler and say to the unjust ruler, you know, you, if Allah has promised that mutaffifin, those who steal a little bit, that they are doomed in hell, how about you, you unjust ruler who steals and kills people, you know, and there are many reports like that. Um, there in books of theology the 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 rule about tatfif which they, they actually talk about tatfif is that Allah will if as long as you do tawbah Allah will forgive if if you're among those who skims a little uh, and you you repent, Allah will forgive you once and twice, but if you persist and then Allah consider, turns it into a kabira that might wipe out all the good deeds that you've done in your life. Um, now, but I should move on after telling you this nugget. So, Imam al-Ghazali and Ibn Arabi said something very close to this as well. 
says التطفيف يكون في الأموال والأعمال تطفيف that moral ailment is can be in the way you deal with money and the way you carry on deeds ففي الأعمال عدم إتقان العمل شرعا تطفيف فكل من لم يتقن عملا فعلا وحضورا فهو مطفف This is mind blowing because what he's saying is and I I'm, okay we don't need to cover what he's saying about money so any amount of stealing any amount of cheating is tatfif that's not surprising but what he's saying when it comes to deeds is that if you do a task a job and you fail to perfect it you are covered by the moral reprobation of tatfif so even being lazy or not doing your job is tatfif see how far your ancestors took it when I told you it's a moral philosophy I wasn't kidding we don't teach it to our kids this way because as I said we're, we're civilizationally defeated so we've taken all the the superficiality in our tradition and that's what we've clinged on to but when Allah said it was an intellectual revolution it wasn't just cheating in selling some grain or selling some food it was and it, it's and it's all that expression because Arabs had not heard al-mutaffifin used contextually in that way before and the more they thought about it the more they realized no this covers a lot of things it has vast moral implications so even if you fail to do your job you are a mutaffif and Allah says Whoa! And when Allah says well, it means you're doomed. Yeah, you know, how horrible the fate of. Okay. Okay. So this is straightforward enough. Don't they, don't the mutaffifin, which are all these moral categories, don't they believe, don't they think that they will stand before Allah to be held to account for their acts of tatfif? The only thing to report on this 
is that there are very interesting discussions about why Allah says Al-Dhan is when is is not certitude, it's probability of belief. So it's like saying, don't they suspect that they will be held to account? And there are very interesting discussions about this, but I, it's, there's no point for us to go into them. The, the only thing that I'll say is that that most commentators go back and say that a this these ayat were not directed at the kuffar these ayat were directed at muslims and it's telling muslims tatfif is not consistent with your faith so that's a and that's why then, it, when you say, don't you think you're going to be, you're going to stand before Allah, the, the answer would be, well, we're believers. We, yeah, we think we are going to stand before Allah. But B, is that people like Ibn Arabi particularly, and and other Sufi-esque tafsir, they say that this is a, a subtle invocation of al-fitrah. That Al-Mutafifin is horrible when it comes from a Muslim, particularly horrible. Because Tatfif from a Muslim is entirely unacceptable. But even a Kafir intuitively knows that Tatfif is wrong. And so even a Kafir, according to them, is that if they consult their fitrah, they would intuitively suspect that there will come time when they will have to account for being among the mutafifin. Okay. كَلَّا إِنَّ كِتَابَ الْفُجَّارِ لَفِي سِجِّينَ وَمَا أَدْرَاكَ مَا سِجِّينَ كِتَابٌ مَرْقُومٌ وَيْلٌ يَوْمَئِذٍ لِلْمُكَذِّبِينَ Okay. So, This is seven. Al-Fujjar, the study Quran translated as profligate, um, and it says, truly the book of the profligate is in Sijin, and what will apprise thee of Sijin, a book ascribed, woe that day to the deniers. Muhammad Asad says, nay, verily the record of the wicked is indeed set down in a mode inescapable and what could make thee conceive what that mode inescapable will be a record indelibly inscribed woe on that day unto those who give the lie to the truth um, okay the reason for you notice the tension in, in study Quran just reproduces the words of Jean Muhammad Asad translates it as um, um, set in a mode inescapable. This is all goes back to the word sijin because sijin was an uncommon word in that form. It is there is a big discussion 
in the tradition whether this is the same word from which the word sijn is derived. Sijn means prison, sejana to imprison, and whether sijin is related to that word. So, and this goes back to some traditions that are not not necessarily of strong authenticity, but here is the the issue. Some traditions say Sejin is a place deep in the seventh earth. These are the traditions that are not um, very reliable. Other traditions or other uh, um, early interpreters of the Quran said Sajin is a reference to a state between a, a, a state between hell and accountability. So, and some traditions even say that it, it is the, 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 the time where people will stand before Allah imprisoned to a very limited space and waiting to be to be what is it, judged. So, and then there are traditions that say that the, the, that wait will be 40,000 years, some traditions say 50,000 years, and, and you get... But that is also these traditions. So in other words, that sijin is that after resurrection, you're standing, you're holding your record, and you're waiting to be judged. And for those in sijin, they will feel the, the full length of that waiting period, which will last for thousands of years. But you get different transmissions as to how, how long. This is what, because of the problematic nature of these transmissions, I think this is what induces Muhammad Asad to say, set down in a mode inescapable. And um, that Muhammad Asad takes a minority view of some of the commentators that said that Sijin is a reference to the to the book, to Kitab al-Marqum, not to any state, but Sijin is a reference to that record. And if, if it refers to that record, to Kitab al-Marqum, 
then the only possible meaning for the, for the gene is that it is an impeccable, invariable record. It's a record that is uncorruptible. That what Allah describes that record as, or وَمَا أَدْرَكَ الْسِجِينَ كِتَابٌ that it's, you can't say the record is in, um, in, in, in prison, but you can say that the record is unchangeable and uncorruptible. And I think Muhammad Asad has a point here because all the reports that say Sejin is either in the seventh uh, level under earth or the reports that say Sejin is this waiting period before, the, you, you get into a lot of problems in transmission and the, the reports conflicting with each other. And again, you have the, the, the problem of the Qusas, the, the role played by those who would travel and entertain people by reporting stories or narrating stories about the Prophet. And most of these reports have, have uh, the Qusas playing a role at one point or another. In my view, that makes these reports very suspect because the Qusas were notoriously known for their desire to entertain and to terrify and to either talk about how the, 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 the wonderful bounties of heaven or the awful punishments of hell uh, as a way of keeping people interested and attracted. And I think grammatically, if you look at the ayat, Sijin does refer to Kitab al-Fujjar lafi Sijin. It's the, the book that is in Sijin. It doesn't say that the Fujjar are in Sijin. Okay. Uh, how much time do I have for my Okay. ويل يومئذ للمكذبين الذين يكذبون بيوم الدين وما يكذب به إلا كل معتد أثيم إذا تطلع عليه آياتنا قال أساطير الأولين طيب ذيس فروم فروم 10 تو 13 The only issue um, if you, there, there is a in my view an interesting discussion you notice it says that الَّذِينَ يُكَذِّبُونَ بِيَوْمِ الدِّينَ وَمَا يُكَذِّبُ بِهِ إِلَّا كُلُّ مُعْتَدِ الْأَثِينَ So this is now 
Those who deny the day of judgment. But none deny save a sinful transgressor. Before that, woe that day to the deniers who deny the day of judgment, which none denies say every sinful transgressor. There is a, an interesting discussion when Allah says, وَمَا يُكَذِّبُ بِهِ إِلَّا كُلُّ مُعْتَدٍ Is the the mu'tadin athim the sinful transgressor is it are the sinful transgressors because they deny the day of judgment or are the sinful transgressors because they do more than they deny the day of judgment so some say uh Mu'tadin Athim commenting on Muktasib al-Ithm al-Hamik fi al-Shahwat al-Faniya hatta shaghalatu al-Hadi al-Shahwat that it is not just that they are deny, denying the Day of Judgment but that they are um, to use the word that the study Quran likes a lot, profligates they indulge themselves in sins of the flesh without refraining. Now, then it says, إِذَا تُطْلَ عَلَيْهِ آيَاتُنَا قَالَ أَسَاطِيرُ الْأَوَّلِينَ So, and in a, in a second it will become clear why I don't want to pause at this because there is a, a more interesting point that overflows or comes back and addresses this point that their attitude towards what Allah says is that these are just mythologies of the past now here is an important point in understanding the role of the Quran and Arabian society. As you know, Arabs were not, literacy was not widespread among Arabs. But Arabian society, through the consecutive waves of the, the existed, although they lived in a desert area, uh, probably not as arid as it is now, because a lot of water dried in the past thousand years. But anyway, they are at an important crossroads where they can come in contact and did come in contact with in number of civilizations. Persian and Greco-Roman and Abyssinian civilizations are among the most pronounced civilizations. Now, why is this important? Because part of the idols that 
the Arabs at this point had imported into their culture where, and this is even today when archaeological digs in Bahrain and archaeological digs in Oman and the Emirates and so on, you find clearly the, 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 the influence of Greco-Roman and Persian culture upon this region. And many Arab tribes had traveled to the Fertile Crescent, traveled to the Nile Valley, traveled and settled in from Yemen, moved on and settled in, in this and in, in the Sham in in Palestine and Syria and had been there for centuries. What part of the mythology that Arabs had heard, but in various corrupted forms, and they flash in pre-Islamic poetry in a variety of ways, is and, and this is, by, by the way, what, what sparked the desire to actually find out precisely what these people were saying, is part of the old teaching of figures in, in highly exaggerated, corrupted forms from Greek philosophy about ethics and morality, particularly um, the sophists and what can be linked to sort of corrupted forms of Aristotelian ideas, Socratic ideas, uh, things that and but with Islam that that turned into a real desire to actually find out what these traditions were. The Meccans had a very interesting attitude towards any discourse about virtues other than the virtues of furusiya or the knight, the virtues of knighthood that the Arabs were comfortable with. Furusiya were considered manly. It had a logic but it was a mixture of virtue and brutality. But beyond Furusiya, their attitude towards a lot of discourses about principles and ethics, not just the oneness of God, but virtue and ethics, was that they are the mythologies of the ancients. When they, when the Quran says mythologies of the ancients, many Mufassirun didn't really. I mean, you you get some of the Tafsir will will give you a hint as to what that meant, but it wasn't clear, and it's not clear to modern Muslims what precisely meant by what was intended by the mythologies of the ancients, because we know that the Meccans believed in Ibrahim They believed in a prophet or a man called Ibrahim that used to be in the Kaaba. They believed in Ismail. So mythologies of the ancients was not that. But the mythologies of the ancients, and it's not even necessarily the oneness of God, which they believed that the idols were the 
interceders. But mythologies of the ancients was often talk about virtue beyond the Forusia. So you are talking about taking care of the weak, you're talking, you're talking about principles such as when the prophet says that all human beings are as equal as the teeth of a palm, uh, all, uh, all people are equal in the sight of God, that's what, that is what they consider to be the mythology of the ancients. The nonsense that they believed, and that's why it, they, they, they were um, skeptics in, in, in a pristine sense because they didn't believe any of that meant anything. Uh, desert life has taught them that you take care of your own. And, and unfortunately, when Islam weakened in Arabia, these ethics returned, that sort of the ethics of warring tribes and uh, you only take care of your own and you, you, you care very little for the stranger, the foreigner, the, the, the person that is not a part of your clan, part of you. And when Islam was coming back and saying, no, these in fact are the virtues and the morality and the ethics, the way they rejected them is to say, these are foreign to us. We've heard this stuff before, but we've long settled that we don't need these lofty ideas because they're not workable. This is more important than, than most people realize because it, it, you know, Orientalists have, sp have spent a lot of, have gone around in circles as to why were the Arabs so interested? Did they go from the Persian civilization, Byzantine civilization, to Arab, the, the, the rise of Islam out of Arabia, why did they become so obsessed with suddenly with Aristotle and Greek philosophy and translated all this material to Arabic? And then the answer is, is, is dull and boring. Oh, well, it's all the converts to Islam. Well, when they were Christian, they were not interested. In fact, when they were Christian, they were taught by the church that reading this stuff is evil. Well, that old church belief, that old Jewish Christian belief that the works of Greek philosophers is evil is precisely the type of attitude that influenced the pre-Islamic Arabs. That's all they knew about Greek philosophy, is that this is the, the stupidity of the ancients. And Anytime the Quran talked about these lofty principles, they reacted to it by, oh, that? We know about that. This is what the church warns, warns about. This is what the Jews condemn as nonsense. This is what we've learned a long time ago is not workable through our practical life in the desert. So 
it was a major civilizational step when Islam reintroduced ethics and virtue beyond Furusiya, beyond knighthood. And when Islam weakened in that region, look at the Arabs at the time of the crumbling of the Ottoman um, Empire, the Arabs as found by British and French travelers who said all, all these Arab tribes in Arabia, all they do is raid each other and kill each other and have feuding. That's the influence of the weakening of Islam and the return of old stark Bedouin values. Because survival in the desert doesn't allow you the luxury of, you know, let's all take care of each other. The miracle of Islam was to civilize these people and get them to think beyond their uh, vulgar, arid, harsh environment. If only Muslims would understand. Okay. Now, كَلَّا بَرَّانَ عَلَىٰ قُلُوبِهِمْ مَا كَانُوا يَكْسِبُونَ كَلَّا إِنَّهُمْ عَنْ رَبِّهِمْ يَوْمَئِذٍ لَمَحْجُوبُونَ ثُمَّ إِنَّهُمْ لَصَالُوا الْجَحِيمُ ثُمَّ يُقَالُوا هَذَا الَّذِي كُنْتُمْ بِهِ تُكَذِّبُونَ So this is now from 14 to 17. And this is worth a pause because of the expression رَانَ عَلَىٰ قُلُوبِهِمْ and you'll, you'll see why it's so important in a second. So let me just isolate the things I want to رَانَ so this you know I, I still fumble my way around iPads but The, first, let's start with the the basic translation. Okay. Nay, but that which they used to earn has covered their hearts with rust. The Quranic expression in saying Rana ala kulubihim Is what um, 
So, Rana Shay is for something to accumulate and to to accumulate to the point of um, spilling over. So, when the Quran refers Rana ala kulubim makanu yaksubun, the expression connotes that it is not it is it, it it's as if there is an active process of incremental build up on the hearts of these people to the point until they become until they are veiled from God on that day. Now, the idea of the incremental build-up, what became... Now, do you notice al-mutaffifin are people who are sort of incrementally become immoral incrementally or because of their incremental thinking rana ala qulubim people who have a build up until their heart is covered or their heart is drowned in blackness when the prophet والسلام, there are many reports that are transmitted about rana ala qulubim but most of these reports go back to the same basic theme. And that the theme first said, إِنَّ الْعَبْدُ كُلَّمَا أَزْنَبَ ذَنْبًا حَصَلَ فِي قَلْبِهِ نُكْتَةٌ سَوْدَاءٌ حَتَّى يَسْوَدَّ قَلْبُهُ the Prophet is reported to have said that the nature of or that expression run ala qulubim means that every time they've committed a sin, every time they've done wrong, it is as if a black spot was added to their heart. And there was an incremental buildup until their hearts became blotted out with blackness. Now, commentators like in Metaridi, and in the interest of time, maybe I shouldn't read the Arabic, but Commentators like the Metaridi and Razi say right on this something that would be of great interest 
to Muslim psychologists. Because they say the Prophet is not talking about an actual blotch of ink or, or blotch of actual blackness. But that the Prophet is talking about behavioral conditioning. So, maybe I can just give you a little taste. لا شك تكرر الأفعال يسبب ملكة نفسية نفسانية فإن من أراد تعلم الكتابة فكلما كان إتيانه بعمل الكتابة أكثر كان اقتداره على عمل الكتابة أتم إلى أن يصير بحيث يقدر على الإتيان بالكتابة من غير روية ولا فكرة فهذه هي الهيئة النفسانية لما, لما تولدت من تلك الأعمال الكثيرة so this is I believe الرازي and what he's saying is this is like people who learn writing. They keep practicing writing until writing becomes of second nature to them. And he's saying that when the Prophet is talking about every time you commit a sin, a, a black spot is added to your heart, he's saying that the Prophet is talking about a hay'anafsaniya, meaning a psychological state. And it's like the art of writing, but here it's the art of sin, if you will. That the more, every, the hardest time is always the first time, but the more you commit sin, the more your ability to repent weakens, and the more your desire to repent weakens. And the more you do it, the less sensitized you are to the evil of sin. And Al-Maturidi adds that this is precisely the problem with Tatfif. That the real problem is that people don't sin from zero to a hundred right away. The problem is that the real danger of sin is incrementalism, is a tatfif. People do a bit by bit by bit until it is becomes second nature to them. It is no longer an issue. It, they no longer see why doing wrong is so significant. So, understanding what the Prophet is reported to have said, they say that this is the only way you can understand the idea of their hearts become blackened or that Allah is saying literally by is that what they've committed drowned out their hearts. Their hearts might have been viable and sensitive at a certain time, but the very process of tatfif, bit by bit until they no longer can see 
what is so awful about what they've done, and they are, and this is then the the way that, in the same way that the veil was built up in their earthly life between them and their Lord, in the hereafter, that veil persists so that. In the hereafter, they are again veiled by their Lord because their hearts have been covered up by the desensitization towards sin in this process of accumulation and incrementalism. Okay. The, the hadith that I was looking for, if I, uh, um, say, who... Um, the Prophet is reportedly in, in this version of the hadith is saying is that every time a person commits a sin, it is as if there is a black spot added to the heart. If a person repents, that spot, black spot is erased. But if a person goes back to committing the sin, the back spot is added again, and as the black spot adds and black spots add up until the point of covering the heart altogether um, and this is what Allah means by, by a raid by rana ala qulubihim and this is what I said the Razi was interpreting behaviorally and people like Mataridi also give it the same type of very close interpretation um, There is some other really interesting material. Um, the difference between Akfal and Ajghal and... Uh, what time is it? Okay. They uh, okay. Uh, I'll I'll wet your appetite and then I'll, I'll talk about it, inshallah after prayer. They talk about Ran al Kuf, Ran al Asyan, Ran al Ghafla, Ran al Taat, or al Asyan, Ran Halawat al Taat, or Ran Hissik Kainat. Five types of Riyan. This is more advanced theology but for so I don't I have a guilty conscience later on I'm just going to summarize what they're talking about because again it's your opportunity to get to know something about your tradition more than the superficial stuff that we normally get okay we're gonna pray Maghrib and come and continue inshallah Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim the 
in Sufi asked the Fasir, they'll often talk about Ran al-Kufr, Ran al-Asyan, Ran al-Ghafla, Ran Halawat al-Ta'at, and Ran Hissika Inat. And what these categories mean, basically, is the, the very idea of incrementalism, but they analyze how incrementalism creeps in different guises or in different categories. So that kufr, um, which by, by kufr typically in this context is not just disbelief in God, but the disregard of God and ingratitude towards God, that often it is an incremental process by which people become alienated from the idea of their own meaning. And, their, and this is often tied also to the idea of being in God's full view. Um, and that Iran um, yeah, al-Asyan is very much what, the, what we said about uh, in, in the surah, the, the incrementalism of sin and the, the incrementalism of sin where sin no longer becomes a big deal or uh, you get to a point where you don't see a point to tawbah itself because tawbah, repentance, makes you feel hypocritical. And so you escape the feeling of hypocrisy by just saying, well, Ran um, al-Ghafla is, um, is um, the process by which you deceive yourself um, into believing, into taking God for granted and believing that God ultimately will just forgive your sins because you're not that bad. You know, there are people who are much worse than you. And so it's not necessarily that you live a sinful life and it's not necessarily that you are um, a an ungrateful person although they're always a mixture of all of these things, but that you take for God for granted and you no longer deal with God in terms of what God is due. The most interesting of these are the last two um, and the ones that I have always been fascinated by the most one, Halawat al-Ta'at, is where you obedience 
becomes the means for your delusion. So you typically that you let's say you you, you pray faithfully, you fast faithfully, um, and then you become convinced that you have some special status that you are an exception to God's laws and that piety becomes the method for your delusion. Um, when we, you know, when we talk about what I talked about on the khutbah last week, the sexual abuse committed by imams, I, I thought of talking about Ronald Halawat al-Ta'at in this context, but I decided it would be too, a bit too um, unfamiliar to people. Ron Hissel Ka'inat It's the incrementalism of in indulgence in the pleasure of sensations of consumption. So you start out not intending to do anything wrong. I mean, the typical type of example is that you, you start out by saying, um, you know, I enjoy good food, let's say. And incrementally, good food becomes a, an object and a purpose in itself. And this could be food or clothes or whatever. And that it becomes a you consume it regardless of empathy for others or the rights of others. So typically, when they when they talk about wealthy people and the how much they are willing to spend on fine, of course, in their age, fine fabrics and perfumes and um, exotic food. Um, and at the same time, you know, say, but this person, you know, they grew up uh, hafiz, they uh, memorized the Quran, they were, uh, they they worship, but you know, the the now the all the money they spend on food or fine text textiles or expensive perfumes from China and India and whatever, and they say that's ran hissikayinat that they they are they just incrementally justify themselves consumption until consumption covers over their sense of the entire of what others are due or the rights of others um, I mean it's fascinating again that just from the Quranic expression you find a whole intellectual tradition mushroom and grow out of it all in the context of thinking or engaging the language of the Quran itself.
אוקיי. So, then, kalla inna kitab al-abrari lafi alliyin, wa ma adraka ma alliyun, kitabun marqum, yashhaduhu al-mukharrabun, inna al-abrara lafi na'in. This is now from... 17 to 22 notice that and I actually didn't know didn't actually didn't come home to me until just yesterday that surat al-mutafifin the surah that we covered the, the on Saturday was um this is um, yeah and we talked about an abrar and the category of who the abrar is it is fascinating that surat al-mutaffifin and probably surat al-insan was revealed before surat al-mutaffifin comes back to the same category of an abrar and it talks about the abrar as in a particularly high category. And put it the, the most succinct way to, to put this is Al-Taqwa, as, as you find often in, in, in Tafsir sources, Al-Taqwa is Ishtinab al-Maharim, Wal-Bir al-Ityan bil-Mahasim. So Al-Muttaqeen, or Taqwa, is that you refrain from what God forbade or you do what God ordered, like prayer, fasting, and so on. But al-abrar, as we learned in Surah al-Insan, is a step beyond that, and that's attaining what al-mahasin, what is beautifully good. Or, as we said last week, al-bir al-lazi la yu'zi and as we said, dhar is the smallest living thing. So, or al-bar, al-lazi la yu'zi dhar. That bir is a person whose piety reached the point that they don't harm even the most, the small. and as we said last time, it is because of their awareness of the right of the other. Now, go, notice this harken back, that theme of the abrar, if you go back and review what we said about Surah Al-Insan, the theme of the abrar is dovetails, again, to mutaffifin, in that who are the mutaffifin? Those who ignore the rights of others, 
who are the abrar are those who are painfully cognizant and aware of the rights of others. And because of that, they earn the right of being in Iliyin or a, a highest stage which Allah describes as and we'll, we'll talk about in a, in, a, in a second that they are in Allah's full gaze and in fact gaze upon their Lord but we'll come to that okay now, I, I'm going to pause at the Ara'ik, which is, you know, basically translated in Ara'iki Yamzurun upon couches gazing, right? This is normally the, the typical translation. But here's the interesting thing about Al Ara'ik in this context. Uh, wait. If I. Okay. First, what's interesting about the expression Ara'ik is that you get reports, Allah Alam, I couldn't, there's no chain of transmission with these reports, that a companion will say, we didn't know what Ara'ik was until someone came from Yemen and we asked them what are the Ara'ik. Then, I'm just going to read it in Arabic and then I'm going to finish. شرف قدر أحدهم وعلت رتبته في الدنيا اتخذ لنفسه أريكة نسبت إليه فيقال هذه أريكة فلان فجرت البشارة لأهلها بالأرائك لما يرغب إلى مثلها في الدنيا لا أن أرائكها شبيهة بالأرائك الذي تتخذ في الدنيا لأن أرائك الجنة مطهرة من الآفات التي هي أثار الفناء ولكنها ذكرت بهذا الاسم لما لا وجه للوصول إلى تعرفها بغير اسمها المعتاد فيما بين الخلق So what he's saying is that He's dovetailing to this narrative about that they didn't know what Ara'iq was until they learned from Yemen. But whether that's historically accurate or not is not the issue. But they say that the practice in Yemen was that if someone became of nobility or became wealthy or became of considerable power, then they would buy, or more likely, have a, an, a, an arika, a couch, manufactured, and that couch becomes known as belonging to this person. So we know already that among the, the the practices of the Persians and also Byzantines that the rich people would eat leaning on a couch that was a sign of wealth but here that not only in, in 
in, coming from Yemen that couches became a status symbol. Only the most noble and the most wealthy would own couches. So he's saying that this is why Allah mentions that the Abrar will be leaning on couches is to basically tap into that cultural construct that the Arabs have. But then he notes, he says, however, but these Araik in Jannah, these couches, are not like anything we know on earth. However, Allah simply uses this, that name, that, because to bring it closer to the understanding of human beings, which I believe this is from Tafsir al Mataridi, which for a, a, a it is typical to find in Sufi Askhtafasir a metaphorical understanding. But in tafsirs like in Mataridi and Al Razi quite often, and even sometimes in in uh, uh, Tafsir like Al Wahidi, and um, uh, you know, people who are more traditional, they will tell you that Allah uses words that invoked a meaning for the audience of the Qur'an at the time with the proviso that you can't take these words literally, that couches cannot, be, cannot mean the couches that you, ha you know on earth. Now, this, may, this is particularly significant because notice what follows the expression على الأرائك ينظرون تعرف في وجوههم نظرة النعيم that their, their faces from their faces you can see the sign of blessing a goodness but then these expressions 25 up to 28 so let's see how they turn so they are given to uh, okay so first يسقون من رحيق مختوم the study Quran says they are given to drink of pure wine sealed. This is very literal. Whose seal is musk. And for that, المتنافسون, So the strivers should strive. And whose mixture is of tasneem. Is spring hence drink those brought nigh. Let's see what Ahmed Asad says about this because that translation is rather clunky. Okay, so Ahmed Asa says, they will be given a drink of pure wine whereon the seal of God will have been set, pouring forth with the fragrance of musk to that wine of paradise and let all such aspire as are willing to aspire to things of high account, for it is composed of all that is most exalting. A source of bliss whereof those who are drawn close unto God shall drink. 
again, Ahmed Asad, I think, is closer to the original. But, Yusquna min rahiqin makhtum khitamuhu misk. The literal translation doesn't give you any sense of the pause that the commentators of the Quran took because Rahiq Makhtum, although in a very literal way it is a sealed wine, but it's a very unusual expression and doesn't make sense if understood literally. And especially when you say khitamu misk, because literally it would mean that what is left at the bottom of the cup is musk which again, literally doesn't make a lot of sense. وَمِزَاجُهُ مِنْ تَسْنِيمٍ Well, Tasneem was not a word in common usage among Arabs, except that the Qur'an goes on to say, عَيْنًا يَشْرَبُ بِهَا الْمُقَرَّبُونَ That those who are truly close to Allah this will be a source of quenching their thirst or their need. The most significant is that even tafsir that are usually not that usually do not interpret the Qur'an's description of heaven metaphorically, came to these particular expressions and found that a literal construction would not make a lot of sense. And were, in my view, forced to accommodate metaphorical interpretations of what khitamuhu misk, what al-rahiqun makhtum, what khitam misk is, what tasneem is. So, they say, rahiq makhtum khamr خمر من المحبة الروحانية الغير ممزوجة بمحبة النفس that it is the intoxication of spiritual love uncorrupted by self-love this is one of the few points in the Quran where even the traditional tafsir were forced into metaphorical understandings of descriptions of Jannah. With a tasneem
even someone like Razi, who usually doesn't understand Jannah in a metaphorical way, says, التسليم في الجنة الروحانية هي معرفة الله ولذة النظر إلى وجه الله الكريم والرحيق هو الابتهاج بمطالعة عالم والرحيق هو الابتهاج بمطالعة عالم الموجودات. so he is saying that تسليم رحيق is is let's leave رحيق for now. okay. so تسليم is is the joy of gazing upon the face of Allah. And the face of Allah, again, is not understood in a literal sense, but whatever Allah allows us to see of Allah's self. Now, this in the context, if you recall what Surah Al-Insan said about the Abrar, and as we remember that the Abrar are the people who internalize virtue and morality from Surah Al-Insan. When it comes to describing the Jannah of Al-Abrar, the Quran uses, like it did in Surah Al-Insan, expressions that were, that do not easily translate in any literal meaning. And as we saw in Surah Al-Insan that if you understand them in the context of um, If you understand, I don't want to say idiomatically because they're not idiomatic, but if, so for instance, wine could be sealed. Now, they had a, a problem with the idea of sealed wine because wine was normally sealed with things that are cheap and impure. So what is the significance to come and saying, well, in the hereafter, the abrar will have sealed wine? But there was another meaning to ar-rahiq al-makhtoum. Ar-rahiq was often understood as the perfume of a thing. And rahiq, can mean wine or can it mean the perfume and the perfume of a thing often stood in Arabic for the essence of a thing so if I say it's not that I smelled her it means I touched her soul I've known her soul and it was used in romantic poetry in that sense. But here, al-makhtoum means, unlike the rahiq, and al-makhtoum in, 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 in could either be mean in the context of wine, sealed wine, or in the context of um, romantic poetry, 
as the unmistakable and absolutely pure thing. So, in Jannah, what would be the Rahik Makhtoub? What would be the unadulterated and uncorruptible, pure Rahik of a thing? And it was difficult to avoid the answer that it would be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's how they reach it. So even the traditionalists said, well, sealed bottles of wine, that, that, that is just, doesn't make any sense. But if we understood it in the sense that we've known Arabs have been using Rahik forever, and the sense that people would use Makhtoum separately as the absolute, unequivocal, final, decisive act, and we put the two together, then it would be a clear indication, especially that in <coughs> Surah Al-Mutafafin, it told us that among the worst punishments is that those are who uh, who are those who are concealed from the sight of their Lord. Okay, everyone follow that? Is that clear enough? Okay. Now, notice this is then We've encountered that word nadra before. And I don't know if you, you remember this. faces that have that same attribute of being nadira. Nadira means uh, um, fully bright, lit with joy. But in Surah Al-Waqa'ah, it is إِلَىٰ رَبِّهَا نَاظِرًا So, those who have the attribute of وَجْوُهُ نَاظِرًا they are gazing upon their Lord. Here, in Surah Al-Mutaffifin, it says, So, this is one of the situations where many Mufassirun said, well, the Nadrat Al-Na'im, the Na'im here has to be the Na'im of gazing upon the Lord Especially that earlier in the same surah, it told us that those who have gone astray are veiled from their Lord, unable to have access to a sight of their Lord. Okay. Then, that, وَفِي ذَلِكَ فَلْيَتَنَافَسِ الْمُتَنَافِسُونَ So, 
normally, of course, you saw, you noticed, the translation is, in this, um, people should vow with one another or should... But, literally means, this is what people should really compete for. Go back to the beginning of the surah. The mutaffifin are people who don't respect the rights of others, who put themselves ahead of others. Why? Well, the obvious answer is life is hard. Life is a competition. We need to get ahead. Incrementally, that attitude resulted in what? In being alienated from Allah. Incrementally, that attitude of, well, you've got to take care of number one, you've got to get ahead, you've got to look after your, your own, you've got to look after yourself and your own, drifted, took people until the point that no, they no longer feel anything for God. Contrast to that is Al-Abrar, and the Abrar are competing, or the Abrar are those who we know from Surah Al-Insan that they rejected all of that and lived by principle. Even if principle will put them at a disadvantage. And Allah comes and says, well, those are the people that will gaze upon the face of their Lord. Those are the people that will have the, 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 the quenching feeling the magnanimously satisfying feeling of feeling what it means to love their God and be loved by God. Okay, then it comes and says, and you know what? This is what you really should be competing for. You can't understand that without the entire context of incrementalism, corruption, and competing for the wrong things, which is exactly the characteristic of al-mutaffifin. Okay. Now, it comes and says something to the people of Mecca who are now, we know, have either... Uh, if the reports that the Surat al-Mutafifin might have even been revealed half in Mecca, half in Medina, or the last Surah in Mecca, is at a minimum, they know that persecution, the, the, the less um, vulgar part of persecution, but perhaps the most hurtful part of persecution is ostracism. People could arrest you and torture you, and it is a battle of wills, but when the ostracism is people constantly mocking you, laughing at you, 
winking with each other about how stupid, how naive, how ignorant, how unimpressive you are. That's corrosion. That's what corrodes your personality. So, and here's that description. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ أَجْرَمُوا كَانُوا مِنَ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا يَضْحَقُونَ So, they used to laugh at those who believed. وَإِذَا مَرُّوا بِهِمْ يَتَغَامَزُونَ And they would wink at one another. And يَتَغَامَزُونَ meaning that they're, they're mocking them. Right? وَإِذَا انْقَلَبُوا إِلَىٰ أَهْلِهِمْ انْقَلَبُوا فَكِهِينَ Now, their attitude about causing that constant state of demoralization to the believers, to Muhammad and his followers, والسلام, is that they were very, they took it jovially and lightly. They were not burdened by it. They were not troubled by it. The nature of the constant derision and mockery was in, in complete pompous arrogance. If you would ask them, imagine those people who laughed and mocked and jeered. Imagine they would go in the hereafter, right? And if you were among them, what would you think to yourself? Well, I didn't hit any of them. I didn't imprison any of them. I didn't kill any of them. All I did was crack a few jokes here and there. What word applies to you? Al-Mutaffifin. You see how brilliant the construction is? You wouldn't put a lot, you don't take mocking people and laughing at them and putting them down seriously. But you wouldn't do it if you didn't have that moral fault, moral failure of al-mutaffifin. You don't put a lot of weight on the way you deny them rights and grant yourself privileges. And I'll show you in, in a second. And when they see them, they say, oh, these are the people, these are the fools. These are the people who've gone astray. These are the pe ignorant people. What does the Quran comment about this? It, the, the comment is most amazing. It says, وَمَا أُرْسِلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ حَافِظِينَ Let's see how they end. This is 33. Though they were not sent as guardians over them, we, we encountered that expression Exact word, hafazim, guardians, but before. We've encountered it where Allah tells the Prophet, we have not sent you a guardian over them. 
And where Allah tells the believers, I have not sent you as guardians over them. But here, it's flipped. And it tells you, they, those who mock the believers, were sent, not sent as guardians over them. Is that the moral failure? This puzzled commentators because our ancestors took the Quran seriously, far more seriously than we do. They said, well, you know, okay, so the moral failure is, you could say the moral failure is that they didn't believe. The moral failure is that they kicked these people out of their homes. The moral failure is that they starved these people to death. But the moral failure is that they believe themselves guardians over them. What is the import of this? What is the significance of this? So, okay, so I'm going to get read a couple of Arabic and then paraphrase. So here is the, 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 the commentators trying to make sense of this. So they say, إِذَا أَعْتَبَرُوا كَمَالَاتِ النَّاسِ بِالنِّسْبَةِ إِلَى كَمَالَاتِهِمْ أَخْسَرُوهَا وَاسْتَحْقَرُوهَا وَلَمْ يُرَاعُوا الْعَدَالَ فِي الْحَالَيْنِ لِرُعُونَةِ أَنفُسِهِمْ وَمَحَبَّةِ التَّفَضُّرِ عَلَى النَّاسِ So that's one. I'm going to read another one, then I'll, I'll comment. Okay. وَمَا أُرْسِلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ حَافِظِينَ أي يعني بل أمروا بإصلاح أنفسهم باشتغالهم بذلك أولا من تتبع عورات غيرهم. So when they try to understand what is the moral failure, he said, well, the moral failure is that they, aside from the persecution, aside from the kufr, aside from all of that, but there is another moral failure that is typical of al-mutaffifin. And here, that moral failure is that when they think of themselves, they don't notice their own faults, but, or they understate and de-emphasize their own faults while focusing on the faults of others. اعتبروا كمالات الناس بالنسبة إلى كمالاتهم so when they compare themselves to others, they say, well, I, I don't see, you know, okay, maybe I have a few faults, but, oh, but look, this person. And, وَلَمْ يُرَاعُوا الْعَدَالَ فِي الْحَالَيْنِ لِعُرْعُونَةِ أَنفُسِهِمْ وَمَحَبَّةِ التَّفَضُّلْ عَنْ النَّاسِ The problem is that they are happy with themselves. And they want to feel superior to other human beings. Ibn Arabi says, in fact, he comments that what 
often makes people who might notice, who might otherwise notice their moral failures, fail to do so, is in fact that they will not take a moment of serious pause to notice how thoroughly disgusting they've become. And the reason they won't is because they will become addicted to the entertainment of looking down on others. So Ibn Arabi says, this is the way you understand a lot of kuf, and this is the way you understand a lot of fisk. You become addicted to the joy of mocking, jeering, laughing, backbiting, if you give yourself a pause and say, what the hell am I doing? You might notice something and you might actually move ahead. But the most, the most remarkable thing is that then many commentators said, well, but you know what? That moral failure because it is the moral failure of al-mutaffifin, and we start out with al-mutaffifin being believers. But Allah then takes us to those who mock the righteous. So when Ibn Ajiba, for, for instance, comments on this, he says, and this is what people of wrong, people on the wrong path, do to people of the right path in every age and every time. They demoralize them and break them down, not necessarily through persecution, but through mocking and laughing and disrespect. And that this sin is only, it becomes, de uh, um, it becomes uh, uh, um, the seriousness of this sin is not appreciated by people because they don't put this, the, 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 the appropriate weight on it until it blackens their heart and they can no longer tell the difference between right and wrong. Okay. Then So when two things, Allah comes and says, so now in the hereafter it will be um, the believers who will be laughing at the kuffar and will be it be the ones reclining on couches, symbolically meaning that they're the ones in, in, in a state of nobility. But notice the way that the, uh, the surah closes. First, two, thing, two things about this. One is that the rhetorical question is as if saying, so, was it worth it? 
Second, every commentator I know of saw the obvious point that here this question of whether worth it applies equally to kuffar, meaning those who don't believe in God, but kuffar in the in the sense of the word in Surah Al-Insan, and that those who did not learn the basic rule of morality, and that is gratitude towards God. Because remember in Insan we said gratitude is the is giving each the right, which is remarkably precisely what Al-Mutafifin says. Each their due. Interestingly, a number of commentators were bothered by the Quran saying that now it is the believers that will be laughing um, be laughing at the kuffar. Why were they bothered by this? Because the Quran says elsewhere that in Jannah people will be cleansed of any unworthy feeling. And to laugh at the loss of someone, someone or to laugh at the failure of someone is an unworthy feeling. So, because our ancestors took the Quran far more seriously than we did, than we do, and because they also had more moral courage than we do, they weren't afraid to raise issues and talk about them. Many said, well, actually everyone who, who raised that question said, that the laughing here cannot be understood as laughing in the sense of jeering at someone's loss of or misfortune, even if they deserved it. But the laughing, meaning it's a metaphorical, has a metaphorical meaning of the realization of their own good fortune and vindication of their perseverance and the fact that they stood their grounds despite their suffering. But there is one other thing that I need to share with you because before I wrap all of this up. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. 
So the, I, I, I like this because it, it wraps up the this, this second half of the surah rather well. So, um, this is in the context of the, the discussion about the metaphorical or, or the, the what laughing means. So he says, again, I'll read it in Arabic and then I'll paraphrase it. I didn't write where this is from because I know you guys are going to ask. Um, I, 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 I'll, okay, I'm, I'm, maybe I'll get a sense from reading it. أولئك صبروا على ما نالهم من المكاره وأنواع الأذى ليكون في ذكره تذكير لمن تأخر من المؤمنين أن عليهم الأمر والمعروف وأنه لا عذر لهم في الامتناع عن القيام بما ذكرنا وإن لهم من ذلك أذى ومكروه بل الواجب عليهم الصبر على ما يصيبهم أو القيام بما يحق عليهم so this is this is a metaridi. It has to be a metaridi. Well, uh, metaridi, I think, I'm pretty sure it's a metaridi. Yes. What he say it is? How did you find out? I <laughs> <laughs> hate the modern age. This, this is like copied ten years ago, and I was like, oh, you know, I'm relying on my memory. I'm very proud of myself. Like I sort of like, and then Rami said, no, it is a metaridi, and he googled. It. In two seconds. Okay, at least I know I can copy accurately. I'm, I'm, I'm like amazed that you remembered that. Sheikh Google is more accurate than me, though. Well, anyway, I, or, or me and Sheikh Google are both accurate in this case. Okay, so what he's saying is that the the the, the point of saying that they are laughing is that the people who were mocked and laughed at and disrespected and demoralized they persevered they, they persevered in the face of hardship and suffering and the point in Allah emphasizing that they won at the end is to remind those living life on earth that they have an obligation to Al-Amr al-Maruf wa They have an obligation to command what is good and resist what is not good or evil and they have no excuse to refrain from doing so even if the cost of doing so is that they suffer because their duty is to persevere in the face of suffering and to do what they are obligated to do. So, take a step back in wrapping Surah Al-Mutafifin. Surah Al-Mutafifin comes, and the first part I think we've talked about enough, is that it is it's saying, okay, you people are going now to establish 
and you experiment. I am not going to tell you about sadaqah, I'm not going to tell you about zakah, I'm not going to tell you about salah, I'm not going to tell you about all of this. What I'm going to tell you is, you are completely on the wrong path. In fact, wailun, woe, to, I mean, it, like absolute condemnation. If you are not peacefully and meticulously cognizant about the moral law which basically do unto others as you like done unto you. The moral law that you can't put your own interests ahead of others. Not even the logic of incremental advantage. Why? Well, because this is precisely how darkness creeps in. This is precisely how you become alienated from God, alienated from yourselves, alienated from your purpose. And remember that true victory is that you enjoy the rahiq al-makhtoom wa-tasneem which, as we said, is being close to your Lord, in the gaze of your Lord. And if you only understood that this is really what's worth competing for, this, this stuff that the mutaffifin do, for in little advantage here, a little advantage there, that's precisely how things go completely wrong. But moreover, did you notice how you lived demoralization and mockery and you, you felt your humanity completely taken away from you? Be not, be not because of the big stuff, but because of exactly those people who don't think that they're doing something really that bad. They're just ma making jokes. They're just laughing. They're just mocking you. They're just saying you're not that smart. You're, you're stupid. You're ignorant. Whatever. Well, that's precisely the problem. And what Al-Mataridi ties in very nicely, and I think he hits it right on the nail, is that without the vigilant attitude of a people that fight for what is right and resist what is wrong, who don't think morality is um, a luxury or a privilege, who don't say, well, take care of yourself and your family and don't worry about the rest of society, which is exactly the type of attitude we, we, we have amongst so many Muslims in our day and age. These are precisely the type of incremental moral slippage, the moral slippery slope that you get into where you become completely alienated from the sight of God 
and completely alienated from the Islamic project in the first place. And that is then, when you understand that, then you understand why Surah Al-Mutaffifin was the sort of gift given to Muslims as the last revelation in Mecca before they start their journey in Medina. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Alhamdulillah, that it's a little bit um, unbelievable that we finished the Meccan surahs and and what a, an incredible, powerful. There might be another Meccan surah. Oh, okay. It's, it's I keep debated. wanting to announce the Hijra. <laughs> it's debated, <laughs> but we'll see. Zanzala. Alhamdulillah, but um, what what an incredible, powerful, you know, ending maybe ending. Um, it's. SubhanAllah. Um, thank you so, so much. Why don't we take a break um, and collect our questions, send them through the chat, and then inshallah we'll start the Q&A. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, thank you again. It's like to say thank you just feels like it's so insufficient. Um, and, you know, I like just trying to imagine how much ground we've covered. And then every single time we get into a surah, um, when it just so much of it you recognize whether it's in yourself, you know, or someone you know, or people in your family, whatever, you know, it's like, um, it's amazing to just, again, see, like, the intuitive reality, you know, the personalities, the, you know, like, things that, that the Quran is just speaking to us as human beings and telling us about ourselves, you know, and it, it's just shocking when you think that you know, we learn all of this, and it, the Quran has become just so um, irrelevant. And and just Muslims today, they, I mean, we have no way to access this type of insight. And so I think when we hear it, it just again underscores how incredibly valuable and you know, um, I mean, how blessed we are to be receiving this knowledge. So thank you. And I, I know some people shared some really beautiful comments on the um, on the chat too. Just echoing the feeling like, you know, we just feel like we've never understood the Qur'an at all in this way, never had a chance to access it, so, um, so thank you. Um, is, is there a, uh, a dhikr or is the Okay. And just for, for clarity, I know someone wrote this as well, could you go through again the, the five, um, I, because I, I, I don't understand the Arabic, the, is it the? Yeah, the, um, oh, the, yeah. The, how, can, can you spell it out too? The, the rain or the... Ran. Ran. Okay. Ran, Ran basically means the, the, the uh, incremental overcoming of. I uh, mean, that, that's, uh, that's the... Um, and they, they talk about... Uh, Typically, they talk about Anwa'uran Alati Tahjub An Shuhud, the types of incremental, incremental growth of things that prevent you from a sound relationship with Allah. And so, the, the first, and it's not helpful to, to understand them in terms of seriousness, but to understand them basically as topologies. So, Ranikov is where um, you 
become um, it's the essence of kuf is ingratitude, and ingratitude is what makes you start thinking that whatever you have could have been the result of without a right due to another, to to anything specifically to God. So that, you know, I have speech not because God gave me speech, but because nature or because it just is. Or I have a complex neurological system, not because God created it, but, and Kuf, typically when they talk about Rana Kuf, they say that People don't usually just wake up and say one day, I don't believe in God. I mean, it's possible, but that's not usually what happens. But they incrementally grow into that attitude through an incremental process of feeling entitled. Um, um, It's sort of the yeah that that eventually they the kufr becomes a part of their character, a part of their attitude, a part of their psychology. Um, Ron al Asian is the same thing as uh, learning to sin, but incrementally. You start out with you know, ignoring small sins uh, or occasional sins, and then then you get to a point where, you know, bit by bit, you that you become insolent. It, it it's no longer a big deal. You you don't think of it as well. You know, at first you might be apprehensive, you might be cautious, you might, but then eventually it just becomes, um, or you even lose hope in, in repentance, or you say, you know, whatever justifications you give. Ran al Ghafla is not that you are, um, it's not that you affirmatively reach the point of kuf or that you are uh, affirmatively sinning, but you take God for granted. You are um, incrementally think to yourself, well, what I do is not that bad. You know, I don't commit any major sins. Um, I don't, but around al ghafla can manifest in a, a lot of ways. A lot of sometimes you find people say, "Run and Rafla is talking worship." That uh, Run and Rafla is that you. It's not that you commit sins, but you stop performing obligations. But I, I, but I don't think it needs to be that. Run and Rafla means um, incrementally just being oblivious and forgetful towards God because. You think to yourself, well, whatever I do, God most certainly is going to forgive. Because, after all, I'm not that bad. Um, 
I think Ron Rafa is, you know, typically when you find someone who, um, um, you know, the, 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 the best earmark of it is that, you know, you find people who fast, who pray, who, but, but they're, they do things that are very selfish, um, that are inconsistent with what they know to be an obligation and what they, you know, they, they might even tell themselves, yeah, I know th this is probably from the devil, but it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm still a good person. Uh, and when, when you get really, if you, if you get really down to their heart, they believe that, well, God is just going to forgive me anyway, because I'm not that bad. Um, Ron Halawat Ta'at are, best way to put it, is people who, they love, like they, they, they'll, they'll pray, they'll fast, they'll do everything that God, but they obey God ritually, but the performance of ritual becomes the path for their delusion. So that's what I was thinking of the Imams who commit these sexual abuses and so on. The, you know, you, you think of yourself as, as, look how good I am, I'm, I'm, I'm such a pious person. And then you start thinking to yourself, well, I'm entitled to exceptions. Um, so I'm entitled to marry this woman secretly and then dump her, you know, and then I'm entitled to this woman or marry this woman secretly and then dump her. Because fundamentally you think, well, look, I, I serve Islam at so many levels, I do so many good things, you know, really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm special. I, you know, look at how many people came to Islam through me. That's halal, that's ranatat, that you, you start thinking of yourself as a special category. Um, and the last one is what they say, ran hissika inat, that um, the, 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 the insensitivity that comes from consumption attitudes. That's what I was saying, giving the example of someone who, you know, likes food. And before they know it, they spend an enormous amount of food or textiles or perfumes or cars by our modern age. You know, someone that, let's say, they, they love cars. And, you know, they say, well, I give a lot of money, I give money to the poor, I, I you know, I pray, I fast, I do, uh, so what if I, but then, you know, they buy, you know, I don't know how many cars, but I don't know what's become excessive, but it, it, where it, they do not think about what other people how much poverty there is, how people might feel, how the poor might feel when they see them, you know, driving 
Mercedes one day and a, you know, a Ferrari another day and a Lamborghini another day and that's that you, you are basically the addiction to the process of consumption itself. Thank you so much, Sheikh. Um, I was wondering whether um, I was wondering whether the beginning of the surah is, is extending the metaphor at the end of the surah, the last, the last verse, where it's essentially in translation crudely saying. Are not the disbelievers paid for what they used to do? Kind of thing. So it just kind of like related mentally for me. It relates back to the idea of they're skimming from the top, uh, thinking that they're earning something, and they are indeed earning something. And you'll be paid for it um, through your action. If I don't write, so through your actions, what they're doing. I'm wondering if that does that further bolster your point. I mean, obviously the rest of the surah also bolsters it, but I'm saying it with this cap. Mm -hmm. It seems to bolster your point that it has more to do with conduct and more to do with the, the moral malady than to do with the earning. But Allah here is, is essentially saying, yes, well, yeah, you're thinking in terms of business, but it's way more than business. And it has to do with, with your conduct itself. That, that's what you're, you know, you're skimming off the top, but I won't be skimming off the top. I will give you your full due. I'll mm -hmm. pay you in full. I won't yeah, skim yeah, off the top yeah. for you. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good point. Um, of course, it is, yeah, it's like you're, you're going to get, uh, you know, it all, all goes back to the, the, the meticulous justice of God. I was trying to remember, there was someone who I read I can't remember now, but who says something very similar to this, that, um, that, 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 that Allah is, comes back and says, you know, just, just remember that the scales of justice, while you were thinking that you couldn't cut corners with justice. Well, in the hereafter, the, the, there's no cutting corners with justice. Um, but also keep in mind that there is that sort of that rhetorical question that, um, you know, it, it's, yes, you know, you, you, there, there are no cutting corners you are confronted with full accountability, which contrasts with the mutafifin and their attitudes. But also that question that, you know, so was it worth it? When when you know what, what when Allah tells you what you should actually compete for, what things you should compete about, and then at the end say, you know, you 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 just get it all wrong because you you compete for the wrong things. You think that you are that these things don't matter. That you don't think of the rights of others. That you don't treat others like you would like to be treated. 
that you don't value the the rights of others like you value your own rights that the feelings of others don't count as much to you as your own feelings count but if you really understood how accountability is going to work it wouldn't be worth it and that of course that that ties the end ties to the beginning um, in, in in a very powerful cohesive message which is amazing because when you see modern Muslims interpret I mean I've sat I remember one time there was uh, I, I, I was sitting uh, in, in a Sunday someone sun, uh, Sunday lecture was commenting on Surah Al-Mutafifid I was actually so disappointed that I walked out um, because the Tafsir is just disjointed and it, it, it's just completely yeah it 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 um, makes you think that sort of Tafasin is basically you know uh, be good and don't cheat Addiction has been recognized by 12-step ideology as a spiritual disease, a spiritual disease that has manifestations and physical manifestations and mental manifestations, but it's ultimately a, a spiritual disease. And, and, and 12-step programs have been recognized by medical professionals since the 1960s as being the most effective way at solving addiction um, in terms of the amount of people recovered and when they take people through the 12 steps they start out by looking at something that they call self-seeking and they basically the whole point of doing this meticulous process is to show you essentially have been in engaging with people in a way that is just based on furthering yourself. Mm. Your, all your actions are just basically what's the benefit to me and if there's no benefit to me, if you've taken benefit from me, then I'm going to do something to you. And part of the reason why they do this is because there's this, there's this delusion that, that most people have and they look at their resentments and their anger first because that's the story that they tell themselves to justify all these things and the, the thing that justifies the way that they are is proof that they're not that bad of human beings that actually they're victims mm -hmm. and um, and so I'm, I'm wondering with Islamically do we because that, that delusion piece always is something that fascinates me it's, it's something that how do we circumvent that because I, I feel like there's such a fundamental issue with if you've been living propelled by your ego your whole life how can you use your ego to see your ego how do you take this stuff from theory to practice and 
one of the things that 12-step program does is they use your resentments that's kind of the gateway it's not they don't actually care it's like you're angry that's nice they don't they don't really care about it islamically is there is is there anything like that that starts as a point as like an indicator as like a surface of the disease that you can use to hone in on 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 that kind of delusion and, and those kind of ailments Um, I mean, it's a, for one of a it's like a, I've, a lot of the, uh, at least what I've read about the, the, the 12 steps, the, I, I said this before, they, they remind me, I mean, it, it's, they remind me a lot of things in the Islamic tradition, but normally when, um, uh, so, Going back to this whole um, uh, that if you are working with a sheikh that focuses on Ayub al-Nafs as opposed to Ayub al-Ghayr, the faults of the self as opposed to the faults of others, the first thing you get you're taught is that you you look at everything that you identify as the faults in people as a mirror into your own fault. So So, I mean, depending, of course, on the how involved you are with your sheikh and, and, and on, you know, different shiuch of different ways. But the, the first thing that among, or the, among the first things that you, you is that, uh, okay, so, you know, what, what think of, uh, the situations where you you think you are you are righteously um, have a righteous cause for resentment and you internalize that and it's summed up in Shagat nafs that you internalize that by first looking at well what does that it is, if you looked at your part in that fault, um, what would it be? If you have a particularly um, uh, demanding sheikh, they'll, they'll tell you that the first presumption you start with is that everything that you point to as shortcomings in others is in all likelihood first a shortcoming in you. That's the closest thing that I can think of than in the, what you... 
and that's why I, you know I just it's hard to imagine that the people who whoever the, the people that came up with the twelve steps didn't read Islamic sources because you find that a lot in a lot of the Sufi literature is that you you know because we we often repeat this phrase you know which comes from the Prophet that be preoccupied with your own faults but not not the faults of others but what does that mean you know when you translate it concretely into a work program is that the likelihood is that everything that you see as a failure in others tells you something about the, the way that your own self is defective. Because we often project onto others what are our own failures. Um, well, I, I wanted to ask you actually um, if you could say well two things for these five five categories or typologies that you mentioned like if you recognize that in yourself um, like what what is a a good antidote it seems like so much of it comes back down to really just being self-reflective and, and and you know humility and like you know I I think taking God for granted, I mean, that's one, for example, that I think a lot of people probably feel like, okay, well, I'm not that bad, you know, there are people that are worse than me, God will ultimately forgive me, that kind of thing. How do you balance, like, that, and actually, I'm asking for a friend, <laughs> for myself, um, like, the idea that, um, you know, how do you balance, sort of, the idea of taking God for granted, and then also, sort of, like, trusting, you know, that having good intentions and trusting that, you know, that you're trying to do your best, but then maybe, well, maybe I am taking God for granted, you know? Like, how do you ensure you're not deluding yourself? Kind of back to the question of delusion. You know, it, if you are... Um, of course, it's it's hard to 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 uh, answer it in the uh, in the in the abstract because a lot of times the the the, the question is well, what type of behavior are we talking about? You know, it, if one is uh, not doing something that is clearly haram and the fact that they're conscious that they are concerned about not taking God for granted the fact that they, while they do their best and they believe in Allah's mercy and in Allah's forgiveness and but they are conscientious that uh, 
especially if they if they hear the voice of their own conscience calling upon them that you know be careful not to take for granted God for granted. That is often quite enough, unless you are talking about someone who's doing something that is jurisprudentially haram, and then the act of haram. Um, then it's a different conversation altogether, right? Um, there is a there is a, a difference between an, a mistake that we 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 fall into despite trying to be vigilant and when we realize we're doing it we repent and we go back and we ask Allah's forgiveness and we make it it's on our mind constantly that it is in a significant sin to take Allah for granted and we, so we constantly ask Allah for forgiveness. There is a world of difference between that and simply, um, you know, not, not just simply having that attitude of, well, this is what I want, so this is what I'm going to do and ask to God, well, I'm sure God will understand and forgive. Normally, when you talk about Rane Kuf, they, they're, they're not talking about the fairest category of people at all. Um, then, then, then it's more helpful for people who are conscious of taking for God, God for granted to think of things like, uh, um, you know, or something like that. that that they, you know, whether they notice that they're addicted to something that has to do with consumption and that they, whether what they're spending on their favorite items of consumption ignores the rights of others. And it's not that they want to take for God for granted, but that they have a difficult time thinking of the rights of other human beings when it comes to their favorite items of consumption because they think they're entitled to consume what they've gotten used to consuming or what they desire to consume. Um, you know, it, and, the, and so they, it's not that they think of... So that's why they, they have these different topologies is that it's sort of what what is most conducive to the getting to the heart of the problem. Um, you know, I'm sure that someone, for instance, who thinks that I'm special and because I'm special, I am entitled to, um, you know, when they, let's say someone who like, uh, doesn't care about the emotions of women that they marry and divorce, they're not taking 
God for granted, although if at a deeper level they are. But the most direct thing is that because they they you know they think of so much of their their good deeds. Oh, oh, I'm working for Islam all the time. Oh, I'm serving Islam. I'm converting people. Whatever, they have given themselves a status that they're not entitled to give, and the, that status has become their deception as to think of the rights of others. I mean, is it? Yeah, so, I mean, do you see, I mean, they're taking God for granted, but the most direct way is mm -hmm. to focus on the fact that they have fallen into the trap of thinking of themselves as, of having a special category where they don't need to worry about the rights of the other human beings. Thank you. Okay, we have a, a question from um, Bessman from the Interactive Group. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much, Professor. My question is regarding good deeds, being meticulous in our actions, and never putting ourselves ahead of others. Do we know what's more likable to Allah during these good deeds, for the love of Allah, or doing it for the love of people and creation? Um. Loving Allah is inseparable from loving creation. Someone that, that, that says, I love people, but I don't love God, is, that, that's a problem. Because then you are being you're leaving out of the equation um, the rights of God and you're focusing simply upon the rights of people. And it's like saying, well, I love the product, but I don't love the maker. And I'm going to ignore the maker. And I'm going to loop around the maker. But if you love the maker, you know that part and parcel of loving the maker is loving what the maker made. And so, is it possible to love Allah without loving people? No, it's not. It, it, and that is in every you know, people who say, oh, I love Allah, but I hate people. Uh, or I love Allah, but I can't stand what Allah created. Uh, the answer is, then you are claiming that you, I mean, in theological terms, you are claiming that you love the that without loving the sifat loving you you claim the essence you love the essence but you don't love the attributes of Allah which is impossible you can't love the that without loving the Sifat and so um, it's not 
which is is for a Muslim and the and that's what puts a Muslim in, in a position where although they might be mistreated by human beings and their own rights not respected by human beings, they continue their commitment to human beings doesn't or to living things generally. Uh, it doesn't fail because they're committed they, 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 they're committed to living things because of their commitment to God. And uh, often serving human beings, serving living things, I mean, especially human beings, is, um, uh, you know, if it's, if it's, um, in order for it not to become self-referential and not become an issue of well, what type of pleasure I get out of it, uh, it, it has to go through Allah. Last call and questions. Actually, I had just one, one more thing that you said that was just so intriguing to me. I thought maybe if you could just say a couple more things about the idea of the, the moral philosophy, how seriously our ancestors took Mutafifin, and that if you, you can't be lazy, and even if you're not doing your job, that you're a Mutafifin. So, yeah, I mean, this is, that. no, just, it, it's, it, I think, I mean, that's among just the, the remarkable thing, is that Tatfif, and there literally is, is that if you, if you don't do what you you is is what duties and rights obligates you to do, you're a mutafif. So you know if someone entrusts you with a job and you're being paid for a job and you don't do your job faithfully, you're a mutafif because you're you're you are cheating. Um, if you, someone entrusts you on a job and not to lie, and you lie, you're a mutafif. If vigilance is part of the scheme of rights and duties, I mean, part of the scheme of justice in life, and when we don't do when we don't give things their due, we're being unjust. And that's not thief. That's the essence of the thief. You know, it's remarkable that the, the Quran came at it because it's like well, the Quran said, just don't be unjust, which the Quran says in so many, you know, that Allah commands qist, Allah commands justice, and so on. But here, it was a different angle that made you come and say, even God knows and notices and records even the slightest cheating 
in the scheme of rights of things, um, which is amazing. I mean, really remarkable. This interestingly was it in San where you were talking about sort of the the natural vows. So could you apply this yeah. to, for example, parenting? Right, you have a child. There's an implied vow, and so if you aren't living up to that, yeah, that that is tafif. If you have a child and you ignore the rights of the child, it's tafif. It's cheating. Or incrementally, you're not doing everything yeah. you can to be your best, yeah. your best job. Okay, I think we're out of time. Anyone has any questions? Thank you so much. This was absolutely incredible, and I am waiting to find out if there is one more Mechansora for me. Well, actually, you might be right because uh, Cheyenne reminded me that we did Zalzala, but we did it in line by line tafsir. Yeah, but. Not the project to rule. Right. But that doesn't mean that we know if it's Meccan or Medina, right? No, it's, yeah, it's, well, yeah, we don't know. I mean, that's, let's leave that when we call it as a Zalani. Okay, inshallah. Okay, well, thank you so much, everybody. We look forward to seeing you on Saturday, inshallah. Have a wonderful rest of the week. So great to see you. Assalamu alaikum.